0: My name is Haley Rubera and I'm the host of a podcast called Drained. On Drained, we touch upon different themes that cause us to feel overwhelmed while we were in college and some of them include like feelings of alienation from home, feeling isolated, trying to navigate a new space, finding your voice, finding your place, finding your purpose, etc. It's something a lot of us experience. I know that with mental wellness and issues surrounding mental wellness, it can feel that you're the only one going through it and that you're isolated, but I started the podcast for people to hear other people's stories so that they would know that they're not by themselves and that they would draw strength from other people who are dealing with mental health issues and are finding ways to manage it, live with it and thrive. Welcome to your Digital Mental Podcast. I'm your host Dr. Christine Boynette from the Welcome Sanger Institute. Fatigue, insomnia, forgetfulness or lack of concentration, lowered immune system, loss of appetite, anger, anxiety, depression, feelings of isolation. These are just some of the symptoms of burnout. In 2019, WHO redefined burnout, calling it a syndrome and recognizing it as an occupational phenomenon resulting from chronic workplace stress that hasn't been fully addressed or managed. In today's episode, we'll be discussing burnout syndrome. What is it? How can we recognize it? How do we tackle it at an individual institutional, and maybe even at an industry level. We'll be hearing personal stories from both me and Beth, my guest, because I'm really passionate about this topic, having experienced some of these symptoms in my career, and I didn't even recognize it at the time. So today, I'm very honored to be joined by a very special guest, Dr. Beth Thompson. She leads Wellcome's UK and EU policy and advocacy work, covering issues including Brexit and research investment, as well as Wellcome's program on research culture. Welcome, Beth. Hi, Christine. Lovely to meet you. Awesome. Um, so, Beth, we'll always kick off with our guests telling
1: us a bit more about themselves and what you do. So, over to you. As you said, I lead our policy and advocacy work at Wellcome for the UK and the EU. And that means that in my job, I'm responsible for developing the programmes that we have to influence the way the government does things, both in the UK and also in the EU, to make sure that we've got a really great environment to fund science in. So Welcome is a global charitable foundation. We fund research to improve health, but it's really important to us that we use that investment in the right way. So that's why my team looks at things like Brexit and research investment to make sure that Wellcome's own investment goes further. I'm really proud as part of my job to get to lead our work on research culture. As someone who's come from a research background, it's really important to me that we make sure that we have a happy and healthy and inclusive environment within the research community. And so it is a it's an enormous privilege to lead that. In terms of my background, I trained as a biochemist initially, I did my PhD, and then I left research really soon after my PhD to move into this space of science, policy and advocacy. So I'll talk about some of my experiences from research, but also how that compares to my my new job now. Oh, that's really cool. I did biochemistry for my undergrad as well. So we've got fellow biochemists
0: in the room. That's really cool. We'll kick into our discussion now. And I was going to just Begin it by sort of saying, you know, research in general is in com- is competitive by nature. It's not as obvious to the outside looking in, but it is. It's very competitive. Whether it's trying to publish your research or get funding, lack of job security from lack of funding, managing a team and managing collaborations... Wearing many hats can bring undue stress to a person. To you, Beth, I'm going to ask, first of all, how do you think all these commitments can sort of add to the stress and burnout? And can we even recognise both of them? What's the difference between stress and burnout, in your personal opinion?
1: I do think there's something really unusual about the research environment. I think in all careers, you have different types of stresses and you can experience burnout. And I have seen people who suffer from burnout in, in other jobs, as well as research. But I think, as you say, research is particularly competitive i think there are some elements about research that are, are quite special there's something inherent to science about the fact we take on these experiments that might not work they're kind of risky you never know what your results will be and then when you couple that with all those external things you talk about like the pressure to publish and the fact we kind of have this very narrow definition of what success in research is we put our researchers in a really difficult position I think there's an element of it that a research career is often a vocation for people it's really really personal and therefore you feel the successes and the failures really personally i know in my current job i guess i kind of do the same i love what i do and i wouldn't want it to be any other way but i think it's still different to research where you kind of everything is invested in it and we hear about people kind of sacrificing their life and their personal relationships sometimes whether it's to go abroad to do a postdoc or the hours you spend in a lab, and all of these things kind of build up, I think, to create a kind of pressure cooker environment. In terms of the difference between stress and burnout, this is not something that I'm an expert in. But I think all of us, in a way, need some kind of pressure to thrive. So you can be under really healthy pressures to produce things. But stress, to me, is when that becomes too much. So like, you've tipped over into unhealthy pressure. So pressure that is impairing your ability to think and how you act and maybe how you feel physically and certainly I found during my professional career when I was and in fact earlier when I was a student I have really felt those stresses that get to the point that they can make you feel physically ill whether it's headaches and migraines or neck pains and that to me was a real wake-up call when at some point I kind of I hurt my neck, but realised actually it was because I was in this kind of constant state of stress. And I was kind of lucky to realise at that point, I think, and to learn from that and look after myself much better. And then when you go into burnout, I think you're in a very different place where all of those things just become so highly loaded that you're not functioning properly anymore in your role. And it's hard in any job, I think, to balance pressure and stress and burnout, because We want to do a great job and you want to keep often doing more. And the more stressed you feel, it it doesn't necessarily feel natural to take a break and to look after yourself and take care of yourself. And so I think I feel it's very easy to tip over into burnout. You combine all of that with this really intense experience of doing research. And I think it is a, a kind of breeding ground for it. Yeah. I was even going to say it really bleeds one into the
0: other. And I like the way you said kind of stress was, if you refer back to university, for example, I felt like stress was almost short term because it felt like during exam time it would be super stressful. But for me, where it bleeds, again, as you say in research, it's kind of sometimes a prolonged and continuous level of stress where, you know, your cortisol levels are extremely high. And I've always said, I think modern workplaces, and again, not just limited to research, is sort of maybe kind of likes the idea idea of cortisol, cortisol gives you like this insane level of concentration. And at some point, your body can't run on cortisol because you start lacking sleep. As you say, then you're getting into that point where you're having unhealthy habits, maybe dependencies on alcohol or lack of exercise. And then it kind of knock on effect is you, you become really inefficient at working. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, it kind of seeps into each other. If you don't check your stress, you'll end up into a point of burnout. And I think even I was at some point, got to that point, but I didn't realize it was burnout because it's constant stress. And I, maybe it's even slightly different in your PhD than in your postdoc, it's also continuous because you then have to publish because it's the, the research culture. And I want you to even maybe comment on it of the publication stress because you mentioned in the BMJ opinion blog, which is the reason I was like, I have to get you on the podcast where you'd worked tirelessly on a project and then you couldn't publish or you were asked not to publish it. And this is where you're getting into where research can be quite personal. And then when it doesn't happen, it's such a
1: a real loss of self-esteem. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Doing my PhD was a really personal thing. and, And obviously, you're looking for the end milestone of, you know, you want to achieve it. I wanted an academic career. That's how I approached my PhD. And I was really conscious during my PhD that if I didn't have a couple of really good publications from it, it would become, well, it would make my life as a postdoc really hard because I'd have this kind of backlog of papers that I needed to publish. So I was, I was really gutted. So when this, a senior person near the end of my PhD said to me, they didn't really think my data were worth publishing and I should just ditch it and go and use my time better by getting some new data and doing something else and moving on. I did take it really personally. I also didn't think it was the right thing to do because my data weren't very exciting, but I did have, it made a contribution to the field. So I ignored them and I published in PLOS One, which was then a very, very new journal. Well, didn't even have an impact factor, I think, because it was too new. Uh, so it just wasn't, this person didn't consider it worthwhile. And that kind of really stuck with me because I think it says something about the, the wider culture of research that we only value like a certain type of success and therefore the kind of the hard work and actually the kind of boring incremental findings that could make a difference are just not valued in the same way. Taking it back to that question of of stress, it is really different, I think, as a postdoc and as a PI. If you're running a lab and you have mouths to feed, you've got to keep your postdocs and your PhD students in work. That pressure is even higher. So I did feel it as a PhD student. I did a very short postdoc at the end and I was on two, three month contracts and I found that uncertainty really stressful. And it was part of the reason that I wanted to move into another career was to get some more stability. So by that time, I decided that, you know, I didn't have great publications, I could use my skills elsewhere, and I, would, I decided to go and do that. But I do think as a, as a PI and as a postdoc, the more senior you get, kind of the more these pressures build up. You have mouths to feed in your lab, you have PhD students, and postdocs you need to support, that's really difficult because you have these other other people to look after as well as yourself and I think yeah I found it just as a PhD student but I think it only gets worse and the pressures come from more directions yeah what I'd describe it as and
0: maybe I'm I'm nailing myself into a coffin, but it feels like a, a race. Once the hamster gets on the wheel, meaning the first time you get funding, you have to keep getting funding because the more people you recruit, the more people you have to keep. And I've seen seen and heard of labs just shutting down. The moment you don't get that one big grant after getting big grants, you have to shut your whole lab down because you can't sustain everyone if they're on that one particular grant. So I think that kind of stress only gets worse. You know, it's not the type of job where the more senior level you get and you get more maybe help, assistance and that lot. I mean, you have to manage everything yourself and then get more money at the same time and publish and stay relevant. Research and maybe a few other industries is one of the things that, as the more senior you get, the more stress and less time you have in the daytime. Also, there was a Forbes article that Madupai just published on burnout syndrome. And I think one of the things that he does say was in research, it's almost a given that you'll be working evenings and weekends. And I think personally, that's a really unhealthy way to, to think of a career. I mean you spend already a third of your life working, yet you get evenings and weekends. I don't know. What are your thoughts on on kind of research culture and working?
1: I agree. And I thought Madhu's piece was was really good on on burnout in global health. And it raises some really important issues that touch on some of the things we said earlier about the sense that it's a vocation for people and when you care about making a difference and you care about the work you're doing it's easy to work those really long hours. And for others, I think sometimes to take it for granted as well. The culture that surrounds academic research more broadly is really unhealthy for individuals, but actually also for the quality of the science. Because I think we are in different ways putting too much pressure on people. I think the long hours culture is kind of fascinating. And I'm not really sure what drives it because sure, there is this pressure to publish and the the need to pull in grants and and therefore be doing all of this work. But to me, it feels like something bigger than that. And it's almost just become this cultural norm that unless you show up and you're in the lab all the time, people don't think that you're serious. So I think it's got big problems for individuals in terms of the pressure that's on them. But I also think it has problems in terms of how inclusive the research culture is because people with caring responsibilities, for example, are never likely to be able to do as many hours as someone who doesn't have them. And I think we want to create a research culture that that does include everyone. I'd like to see more more of a healthy balance in that. I know, I mean, sometimes experiments don't kind of fit into a nine to five pattern. It's not always straightforward to just say, well, we're going to do regular office hours. And I know in my job, I struggle to fit it into regular office hours. And I work some strange hours some of the time. But It's not an expectation. I think that's really important that it's not doing those long hours for the sake of it, and recognizing the importance of taking a break, which I think we don't always do in research.
0: Yeah, and like listening to your your body, I think that's also one of the points. The days that I'm exhausted, especially now we're working from home, the days that I'm just mentally exhausted, and the days I can work at the weekends completely fine. So I think it's just listening to your body and saying. There's probably a reason why you, you can't write anything efficiently. You're just it's just really slow to write even a paragraph. Those are the days I'm like maybe I just need an afternoon off and then I can make up the hours at some point. But you've said a really another important thing. I read also in the article, I didn't realize this, that is there an email policy with welcome that you know, out of hours emailing. I think that's the super healthy way forward in that you can't always be reached to avoid the always on culture. What do you think about always on culture of research and the advent of the smartphone, which?
1: Yeah, I think technology is, you know, in some ways it makes our lives easier, but it does mean it's always there. And it takes a lot of discipline not to be using it. So I find welcomes policy, which was actually started by our director, Jeremy Farrar, who said, I'm not going to email you between 7pm and 7am. So you don't need to be worrying about the fact that you might get emails from me. And it's kind of rolled out across the organisation. And I do the same thing with my team. I, mean, I really try not to work beyond those hours anyway. But if, you know, you have to log in and do something, and you kind of make sure that you're not putting a burden on anyone else in those times. I think it's really healthy. To be honest, like 12 hours a day, that should be enough time for anyone to be working. <laughs> yeah. Because you also need to eat and you need to sleep and you need to hang out with people that you like hanging out with. That's another one
0: of the things that will, if you know, it kind of reduces your cognitive
1: function if you don't sleep. So I think that's a really, really important point to sleep. And getting some exercise, right, which is also, I find, is is so important for thinking clearly and for my energy levels. And it's the first thing that can go when, you know, you have too many things on.
0: And in terms of technology, one of the things that I try and tell my and I started doing this, I think when I got a smartphone, which was a while ago. But first time I heard it, one of my friends, who I worked with, they traded in their smartphone for what do we call a stupid phone. Like they didn't just had text only. And I said, my jaw dropped. I said, you don't even want like the access of, let's say, podcast, for example. And what I end up doing is I, I don't have my phone on ping, email ping. It just, it's only when I request and refresh it to kind of download it. And I think that's like a healthy thing. Were there any things in terms of
1: technology or ways you can combat the always on culture that you can think of? You've hit on a really good one, which is switching your notifications off. So I do the same thing for my emails and for social media as well, because I mostly use social media as a work tool. I do use social media at the weekend, but I quite enjoy it. So I think that's okay. So I think there is something about you using the technology when you want to use it and when it's going to help you do your job rather than feeling like the technology and the kind of your inbox is driving you. I love my digital to do list. I converted to that a few years ago, and now couldn't live without it. Um, like having to go back to a, a low tech version of doing that I would find really hard because it really helps me organize multiple things. And
0: what is this digital to do list just that you've just written it in a digital form? Or is there a specific platform that you
1: do this on? So there's quite a few platforms I use remember the milk Other platforms are available, but I think it's really good. You can categorise your tasks, you can put dates on them, you can move them around the list in date order. Yeah, so you kind of have this accomplishment that it's gone into the green box. I have a management tool exactly like that. It gives you the same satisfaction as putting a tick. And this one I can also literally tick, which is really nice. So, you know, there's great benefits, but I think it is not being driven by it. I try really hard to keep my inbox to zero or nearly zero, um, which doesn't mean that I reply to everything when it comes in, but I kind of put them somewhere else because then you're not just distracted by this huge, huge list. It doesn't exactly work, but I, I get as close as I can.
0: That's a fair thing. If you saw my the numbers on my inbox, you'd be shocked. But I've stopped. I have so many that I have a, a blank. I look at it with without despair, which I think
1: is also a good thing, just blocking in your mind. I think there's something really interesting about perfectionism and, and kind of pressure and stress. And I don't know whether this is a common thing across the kind of people who are attracted to research careers, but I, by nature, am a total perfectionist. And things like email and technology, I think, are really bad for that, because you're never, like, you never finish them, and they're never done, and they're always there. And it's something that I've really had to learn over the course of my professional life to kind of dial down my perfectionism. And actually, I think in my current job, I have too many things to do, and I can't be perfectionist, and I'm now much better at coping with it. I think in a way, research doesn't encourage you to dial it down, you're kind of encouraged to be perfectionist, which if you're like that already, I think can make it even more intense.
0: Yeah, I think the the publication process, in fact, is a perfection reading and making sure there's no, because the, the idea of getting an erratum after you've published is almost soul destroying. It really has to be perfect. And I think you can lose quite a lot of sleep on trying to perfect that. And as you say, I think it's, it attracts a certain person who likes perfection attention to detail, which is a very beautiful sought after thing, but it can be quite debilitating. If, As you say, with emails, even though I'm kind of not affected by my email number, but what I do have, sometimes I have to have a separate browser minimized. the red pings or let's say you see a twitter ping or like a red button it's almost like the red means i have to check it so it's one of those things it's what you have to kind of dial down your OCD, which is a real real shame, I think, that one. Another thing to say was also like the learning to say no. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think early on, and even when I did my PhD, saying yes to every invitation that you're being invited to, to speak, to present anything, I would say yes. And then at some point, you hit a critical point in that hill where you've said yes to so many things. And I think that can exacerbate stress. How have you found saying no? And then how do you say no in a professional capacity that you're like, hey, No, but here's somebody else. How how have you found out and how do you manage saying no? It's really hard.
1: And I think it's hard for a couple of reasons. Part of it is about, it's really flattering to be asked to do things. And I really like being helpful. So I like to kind of try and do my bit where I can. But I think also it's just difficult to to say no to people. When someone asks you and gives you an invitation to something, I think it's surprisingly hard to kind of feel like you're letting them down in some way. It's definitely something that I have been working on. And my team over the last few years have really prioritised our work. So I use that as the framework to help me make a decision about whether something's a good use of my time. Is it something that it has to be me to make a contribution to? Or can it be someone else in the team? And can I delegate it, which I do as much as I can? But also, is it just something that we're not suited to do at all and actually it's better to pass on to somebody else? And what I do there to basically assuage my guilt in saying no is to be as helpful as I can in suggesting other people or making introductions, and that does make me feel a bit better. And I think helps when you say a kind of polite no that you, you genuinely do want them to succeed in what they're doing, even if it's not you participating directly.
0: As long as you're offering a solution or somebody else that can help it's not you just saying no, because and I think people need to also learn to know when somebody's saying no, not for lack of wanting to help you. It's just they've got too much on their
1: plate and you always appreciate somebody being honest about that. And it should be really OK for people to do that. I think it's hard, but I think we need to make it more OK for someone just to say, I'm so sorry, I'm too busy. Increasingly, I have been more direct and said that. And it's amazing how people respond. Like, people do respect it. And I think it is something that's worth trying more. And particularly conscious in academia through all the discussions that we've had through our research culture work that there's some evidence that particularly, for example, women do more types of the kind of additional like extra jobs, whether that's serving on committees or more pastoral work than male researchers do. And if you look at lots of the diversity and inclusion initiatives that are going on, we're often putting additional burden on groups who are already minoritized to pick up more work to solve a problem that is effectively a problem of the current establishment which is largely white and male. I think in research this idea of saying no and kind of respecting your own personal space becomes particularly loaded when you're working in that context that the research community is putting a whole bunch of pressure on people and they're often really worthy initiatives and things that need to happen but actually in those cases I think a lot of the time we need allies to step up and really help to to kind of share the balance.
0: Yeah, I really like how you said that because I think even in some places where I've worked, you, you realize let's say very few women maybe are at the top, and then they get burdened with all the committees, and, and I think that takes up a lot of time and their time away from their research or their team. So that's a really important thing. And you've touched on the welcome research that you guys did uh, at the beginning of last year it was released, or at the end of last year it was released. Burnout, as you said, can be a whole industry-wide. When I say industry, the whole of research can see burnout. How do you then start to tackle it and maybe at an institutional level? Like what were the outcomes of the research and then how do you then implement or relay that to institutions to, to kind of act on that?
1: It's such a multifaceted problem that we're not going to end up, I think, with like some simple silver bullet solutions. But the way we're approaching it and thinking about it is that we need the different actors' within the system to play their part and to do their bit, but preferably to work together to do that, because I think that way we can create the system change faster. So specifically on mental health, I think it is really important that employing institutions do their bit to provide the kind of wellbeing and welfare support that researchers need. We've seen UK universities provide more support for their students in terms of mental health recently, their undergraduate students. I think for postgraduate students and for postdocs, the provision, it seems, can be quite a lot more patchy. So I think there's some quite basic work that all employers can do, but including in the research sector to make sure that their employees are supported and have people to reach out to. At Welcome, we have mental health first aiders in the same way that we have first aiders for physical health around the building. So these are people that you can call on if you need to talk. They're a first responder in the same way that any first aider is. They're not there to fix the problem, but they're there to find the right help. And I think that kind of initiative is really important. I think in research, and this goes back to something we were saying earlier, there's a particular challenge about mental health that it's quite a tough culture where individually you have to be very competitive. We often see the really big egos and the kind of real tough guys of either gender like really come to the... To the top of their game and I think it's very hard for people to be vulnerable about their own personal challenges and that might be mental health it might be other things but I think there is still a stigma attached to mental health and I think that applies in academia as well as in the rest of society but I think there is a particular challenge with, with showing that vulnerability and asking for help. The research that we commissioned as part of our research culture programme found that 53% of the respondents had either sought help or wanted to seek help for depression or anxiety during their career. That's a lot of people. I guess in a way I feel like one of the lucky ones because I didn't feel that my mental health took that bad a hit that I I got to that point but for half of our researchers um, or research staff to be feeling that level of depression or anxiety i think is something we should all be worried about and take action so there are some institutional things i think we can do but really importantly as we said at the beginning there's all these there's complex drivers that shape the way research works and i think ultimately we need to view this as part of a kind of systemic problem about the culture of research the long hours the pressure to publish and the fact that we incentivize people to behave in certain ways and we, in doing so we put a certain pressure on them. So I think it's really important that we treat it as a systemic problem when we go back and we look at those incentives and those drivers. And that requires people like Welcome and other funders across the world to ask themselves about what they're doing and also for institutions to think about the pressures they're putting on, on their teams. But recognising that that in turn comes from funders and governments And it's right that there should be accountability for how public money is spent and how charity money is spent, of course. But I think we have to use those levers really carefully.
0: You have said something really, uh, touched on something really important and maybe close to me is stigma and mental health. I'm from uh, Kenya, obviously, global south, and mental health isn't really thought of as an important thing in the global south. I wish we had Dixon Chibanda on, but he started an initiative called the Friendship Bench, where You know, people in the community are talking to people and not really calling in mental health, but just kind of sharing stories. I think, I mean, that's a really nice way of saying it in terms of not really calling in mental health, but kind of making sure you are okay. When I was quite stressed out, I I couldn't quite tell anyone because I've grown up in Kenya and... The idea of burnout, all those things would be would be classed maybe as laziness, and then you keep saying, "But I'm not lazy. I have to keep burning through." And unfortunately, it's a weird spiral after that because you try and put more time in, and you're not being as productive, and it's it kind of goes down. And now I can see it in somebody from the global south that they they, they're stressed, but they can't really quite say. They keep beating themselves down, and obviously, Welcome being a very diverse place to work. Can we adapt some of the ways we we talk to? people who come from cultures where mental health isn't valued, even though we, hopefully with time, and I think things are changing, but we're coming from cultures where mental health isn't valued or thought of as one way. For example, people just think mental health, they immediately think somebody who is in an institution or needs to be in an institution, but not just a daily thing. How then can we work in a diverse environment, and as you even touched on uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion, how do we then include the type of thinking? Do we need to shift the way we think about mental health with people from different
1: cultures? I think it's really important. And I love the way you framed that thing. It's like talking to people about how they are. There's a really human thing in looking after each other and making sure that we're well. And at one level, I think all societies do that really intuitively. And it's kind of a part of, of being in a community. But then sometimes when you put labels on things like mental health, it becomes... different kind of challenge. And I think we do need to be really sensitive to the fact that different cultures will have different perspectives and particularly look out for people who in themselves might not recognise the level of stress that they're feeling. So I think we have to be sensitive to those differences. I think in a way it helps not to make any assumptions about people as well. And I think this goes probably for lots of things and not just mental health, but it, it helps to Assume that a person is just a person rather than looking at their demographic or whatever it is and, say, and kind of putting them in a box, just trying to deal with them on that individual level. I think that's the best, the best solution that I can think of.
0: You've hit the nail on the head. I like it individual level and talking to them one-to-one because it might take time for somebody to actually open up to say they need help and, and that's definitely the case was for me and I'm sure for a lot of my friends from the global south like you wouldn't get maybe the answer the first time but you start to see some traits and you're like I think something is going on and then they'll kind of break open apart
1: and I think it's really hard for anyone actually or for, for most of us to talk about our mental health it's kind of easy to think oh you kind of ask someone if they're okay and they give you an answer so it's job done. But engaging in that deeper conversation, I think it's sometimes it's easier for other people to see that something is not okay with you than it is for yourself. So giving everyone that time feels really important. I was really struck in some of the data from our research culture survey about issues about intersectionality and mental health. So we looked within that survey also at various issues to do with diversity and the inclusiveness of environments. Our data was mostly from the UK, but um, 75% from the UK and some from the rest of the world. But we really see that different people experience research, the culture of research, in different ways, um, and that it's much harder for some people than others. And I think this fits really interestingly with your question about like not making assumptions or speaking to someone differently because they're from the Global South and might not see the issue the same way as someone from the Global North. So certainly in our survey, we found that women and non-binary people had more mental health challenges in research than men. We saw that LGBTQ plus people similarly faced more mental health challenges than heterosexual people and the same for disabled people compared to non-disabled people. And I think it's so important to deal with like the individual in front of you and the issues they have. But I think that also tells us something about the fact that our research culture is not working as a whole, but it's particularly not working for some people and it's not going to work for everyone until we make it work for different groups and particularly minoritized groups because we need all those diverse inputs otherwise research is losing out.
0: That's a really awesome note to finish on that, you know, we need to humanize and individualize people. And we're not just statistics, but I really enjoyed reading the output of that research that you guys did. And I hopefully, you know, institutes can read and kind of adapt it. And now that we're coming up to the almost end of our discussion, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, we'd love to hear any take-home messages you have for our listeners. Uh, we'll be right back.
1: This episode is supported by Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, a programme which develops and delivers training and conferences that span basic research, cutting-edge biomedicine and application of genomics in healthcare. Through engaging and networking, the events educate, inspire and transform careers worldwide.
0: This episode is also supported by the Wellcome Sangha Institute. It undertakes large-scale research that forms the foundations of knowledge in biology and medicine. It uses the power of genome sequencing to understand and harness the information in DNA. The Sangha's discoveries are used to improve health and to understand life on Earth. This episode is also supported by Social Entrepreneurship to Spur Health. The SESH group uses crowdsourcing to enhance health and health research, with a focus on low- and middle-income countries. Welcome back. So as always, we always ask our guests to summarise one or two points that listeners can take away from our discussion. So Beth, do you have any points that you want to give to our listeners going forward
1: about mental health awareness that they need to have? What would you say to our listeners? There's two things I'm going to pick out. The first is that the the pressures of research, I think, are really extraordinary And I think there are things that we as a research community need to do to make those better. We need to align incentives differently and have a broader definition of excellence so that we're not putting the same type of pressure on. That said, I don't think we'll ever completely get rid of all of the stress of research because it is such a personal, uh, often vocational project and career that people are embarking upon. But we should make the culture around that better if we can. People do need to recognise, like people particularly working in that research environment, that it is unusual and kind of cut themselves some slack to be able to deal with that in whatever way suits them. And it it is really difficult and it's, it's so tough to succeed, but ultimately you're going to do better if you are healthy. Chris Denning from Nottingham has written an amazing blog about his experience of, as a senior, a senior academic and the experience that he went through and, and has talked very openly about it. And I think we could all learn a lot from, from that kind of openness. I guess my second takeaway is the point that we finished on about individuals. And I think we have to recognise the diversity of individuals in research don't experience the culture in the same way. And it is really important that we make the culture better for everyone. And in the meantime, I think that really individual human to human approach is so important for us all to get the best out of it.
0: It's true. Research is such a wonderful vocation. And I've always called it a roller coaster where the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I love discovering new things, but there are some really awful times. But it's truly when I'm at the trough, I'm always looking forward to the peak because it's a really enjoyable peak. And I remember in my PhD, I did tell people, ride the wave because it'll come crashing down at some point <laughs> when you get a reviewer number three coming back with some very harsh reviews. One of my take-homes, and it'll come back to something you said, is like, don't be afraid to fail. I think perfection is the biggest downside of researchers and for me even it wasn't quite failing i've always said failure is subjective i thought i'd failed in something but then it opened up such a new world and now i you know i do a lots of teaching and for me that came at a point i was like i don't know what to do next and you just find opportunities that opened up to do new things and new jobs so i always say don't be afraid to fail it adds also to both your points yeah. is a uh, lot of empathy and compassion i think this is the one thing when somebody's coming to you and Give somebody the time to really breathe and tell themselves, come to their realisation. So again, not putting anything on anyone. They have to come to their own conclusion. And with that, I'd just like to kind of thank my guest, Beth, so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey with us and also insights from the Welcome Research. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell the
1: guests where they can find you on social you will find me most on Twitter. and um, My handle is Beth underscore Thompson. So yeah, please come and check me out there. I tweet a lot about research culture with a little bit of Brexit
0: your Twitter is very interesting and I am so thankful I've I've already followed you on many many (laughs) different platforms Uh, so thanks so much and for our listeners thank you so much for tuning in please follow us on Twitter at mentor underscore podcast that's mentor underscore podcast we'll let you know when the new episodes are coming you can also listen to us on YouTube Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts and SoundCloud by searching for your digital mentor podcast you can now reach us by email so please send your comments and questions to inquiries at digimentor.net. that's inquiries at D-I-G-I-Mentor.net. D-I-G-I, as always information on the episode will be in the description box including how to connect with our guests and also links to more information and resources that Beth has mentioned and finally our goal is for the podcast to be shared as a resource so please remember to tell people about us thanks again and see you in two weeks